So, when I, we're, we're studying through the Psalms, we'll, we'll be in Psalm 40 this evening. Uh, when I was about seven years old, my older cousin, my, my mom's side of the family, had, has a, a, number of, a number of grandkids, like I think there's 17 of us all together on my mom's side of the family, from uh, my mom and her four siblings. And uh, my grandpa and grandma often got us together in the Rocky Mountains for family reunions. And so um, a lot of my cousins, my mom being the youngest of five kids, a lot of my cousins were a lot older than me, um, which created for some interesting dynamics and memories (laughs) growing up. Um, But I remember one of my older cousins, Jonathan, bringing his ghetto blaster. Anybody remember the, the, that would be like a boombox on the shoulder, it was called called a ghetto blaster to a family reunion. He had a whole bunch of cassettes for it, and uh, <clears throat> I remember that he was especially fond of his cassettes for this band called U2. Anybody remember U2? Um, I, remember, I remember distinctly my dad um, instructing him to be careful about what kind of music he played in front of his younger cousins, and, uh, and I remember that uh, his kind of defense or reassurance to my dad was that uh, while not explicitly Christian music, the artist had a strong faith background, and he played him a song with a simple title called, For- it was just called 40 by U2, and a sampling of those lyrics. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay. I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, sing a new song. How long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? How long, how long? How long, how long to sing this song? Uh, You set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. Many will see, many will see and hear. And then it repeats the refrain. Um, That song was by you too. It was called 40. And my cousin was pretty sure that such obviously Christian words sanctified everything about all the music that he was listening to. That's often often the case uh, when it comes to young people. And uh, so basic logic, logic and reasoning aside, when I was studying Psalm chapter 40 for this week, I thought these words sound familiar, and it brought this memory back to the forefront of my mind. I realized that I had heard these words before, and I realized suddenly that the simple title name of that song that seemed kind of weird to me at the time, its inference was Psalm chapter 40, that actually the words uh, were, were inspired in uh, the U2 song by the psalmist in Psalm chapter 40. I didn't go and read like what, uh, the, what the purpose of the song or what the story was behind it. It was just kind of a funny thing to be reading these words and being like, I've heard these words not just in church before, but to remember this memory of my cousin Jonathan and his ghetto blaster. <laughs> so Psalm 40 is one, we're looking at the messianic psalms right now. So those are psalms that uh, there, are, there are some that King David, when he wrote them, wrote them as prophecy, and then there are some that in the New Testament, uh, later the authors of the New Testament looked back and, um, and saw uh, God's hand in the Psalms as declaring uh, a word about our Messiah. And in this case, this, the, Psalm 40 is the latter. Okay, so Psalm 40, we'll get, I'll, I'll point out when we get to the verses, uh, but for now we're just going to work our way through the Psalm. Psalm 40 Verses 1 and 2 begin, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and He heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. 
He set my feet on a rock and He gave me a firm place to stand. Now, when I was a young Christian, I didn't understand the appeal of Psalms that much. Okay? Like it just seemed really emotionally, emotional and touchy-feely and I didn't really identify with most of those feelings. I thought for the most part there were some decent uh, songs that had been written for the church that had come out of them, but I didn't identify strongly with the Psalms. It wasn't uh, always the instruction. I needed real blatant and bold instruction and these, these, these stories that my kids gravitate to where there's wars and God shows up in these mighty ways. That was what I gravitated to as a young Christian. But these verses highlight why now, as I have walked a little further down the road, uh, that the Psalms really appeal to me. And that's because life is full of slimy pits and a lot of miry clay. There's a lot of places we get stuck, we get, uh, we get, we get uh, slipping and sliding in, and we're not, sh- we're not sure how we're going to get out or when we're going to get out. That I, I understand that life doesn't go according to plan and that the path or way of God really oftentimes boils down to patiently waiting for His deliverance. Trust, deliverance. Trust, deliverance. It's kind of this cycle of uh, navigating life and trusting in His faithfulness to lead you to victory upon victory. But in, in the in-between, in between the victories, it's a lot of slimy pits and miry clay. Now, we only think of slimy pits and miry clay often as sin because of, how, uh, because of maybe some of the songs, but the psalmist means much more than just personal sin. He means also uh, just the trials, the tribulations, the affliction. So affliction would be like a source of outside pain that come against us. So he's reflecting and he's saying, uh, he's saying, I'm waiting for you, Lord. I'm crying out to you. I'm waiting for you to show up and lift me out of this mess. And scholars don't know exactly what situation he was talking about, but the prophet Jeremiah was one who was literally thrown down into a pit and into the mud. Jeremiah 38.6 says, they took Jeremiah, put him into the cistern of Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard, and they lowered Jeremiah by ropes into that cistern. It had no water in it, only mud, and Jeremiah sank down into the mud. Uh, he sank in the mud, literally, because he was following the way and path of God. So sometimes, mud and pits can be more than just sin. Okay, That's what I'm trying to point out. For David, there were many times that he may have had in his mind as he wrote this psalm. Many, maybe one of his most humility, humiliating and lowest points is when David, with Saul closing in, is forced to flee to the Philistines, whose champion, Goliath, is the one he killed to rise to fame in Israel. And he has to act like a madman, dribbling saliva down his beard in an attempt to escape with his life. Some have thought that maybe he wrote this during that time. Although others have said it's unlikely that he did anything coherent or cogent at that time because he was trying to pass as a madman. Um, But God ultimately lifted him up and put his feet back upon the rock and made him king over Israel. But many believe that this psalm speaks of the time when his own son Absalom, uh, he had to cast him out of the courts and... And so he stood out at the city gates and he began to twist the king's words and he began to invite people with complaints to air their complaints to him. And rather than just dealing with their complaints, he said, oh yeah, that's a valid complaint. The king is not, he, he doesn't really care about your concern. Just let me handle it. And he kind of swindled his own dad out of the throne. Um, and so David, some of his most angstful writing comes during this time as he feels like even his own son has turned against him. And if you could imagine what it would be like for your own child to betray you, that might feel like miry clay and slimy pits. 
He knew what it meant to be trapped or to sink down into the depths of despair, loneliness, fear, isolation, guilt, despondency. Some say that the way that he responded is recorded in Psalm 143, that it was written around the same time as Psalm 40. Psalm 143, verses 3 through 6 says, For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He's made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. But, and listen to this, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as a parched land. There are four eyes that David perpetrates from the miry pit. There are four things that he does when he is stuck. It says, first of all, he remembered the days of old. He remembered how God has been faithful. And this is a theme all through through Scripture. And I'm finding in an anxiety-ridden culture that one of the most effective means that I have for counseling is to say to a person, can you tell me about a time that God was faithful when you weren't sure how you were going to make it? And then they'll tell me one story, and then I'll say, do you have any others? And pretty soon we have mounted this pile of evidence that God is faithful, and that even when you can't see the way, just like we sing often on Sundays, even when you don't see it, He's working. Even when you're not sure where your help is going to come from, you can still look up and trust that from the hill will descend your help from on high. That He will reach His hand down to you as you reach up to Him. So we remember the days of old. We remember again and again that God has been faithful. And this is what Romans says, is that the reason that we should learn the Old Testament is to read more stories about God's faithfulness. Because we are uh, descendants of the Gospel story from Genesis to Revelation. So we, we battle and we struggle through the pits and the clay by remembering what's gone before. Remembering that God has always been faithful. And it says then, He meditated on it. That word meditate, it means to mutter to oneself constantly. It means to chew it over. It means to make it something that we ponder for long periods on. So He chooses then to rewrite what, uh, what His thought patterns are. In Corinthians, Paul says, that the way that we fight the battle of our mind, the way that we demolish the strongholds of anxiety and fear that so easily seem to sometimes take root in us is we take those thoughts that we know are lies from the enemy, no matter how real they feel to us. And sometimes that's the trick, is our circumstances feel so real and so tangible that it's hard to let go of it's hard to let go of that version of reality and to trust that accepting the blood of Jesus and walking in the power of His Spirit is enough. It's tough to feel like you could even make it through this day, let alone the whole season, right? But Paul says, we take these thoughts captive and we make them obedient. So there is a discipline. I, literally, <laughs> there, I was just, I had to get a little stern with a, with a sister in Christ a while back and just say, the, the, the enemy is the father of lies. And she told me, she said, you, you don't know 
that this is going to work out? And I said, yes, I do. I said, I, said, I said, the Lord has called me to steep myself in these promises. And so if there's one benefit that your pastor could bring to you is that I'm reading these promises with clear eyes. And the enemy is the father of lies and you are clouded right now by lies. And I need you to hear me really clear on this. Jesus has promised these things and they will happen. And you need to change your thought patterns. You need to choose right now to cast down those lies in prayer before God and you need to begin to recite these promises that I've put before you and name them as the truth of your reality. And I've, I came away from that situation and I thought, Lord, I am sorry if I was... And, and I've, I just felt like, no, the Holy Spirit had spoken real... I felt odd being that firm, but at the same time, I felt like in that moment, the Spirit directed me to rebuke the Father of lies. And that's what we need to do. That's what it means to make those thoughts captive, to take them captive and make them obedient. It means to forcibly wrench, the, wrench their arm behind their back and push them into a cell and put them there and make them obedient to the cross and let them know one day your future is to stand before the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Just like you once said that Jesus' reality was death. And God said, nope. His reality is life because he subjected himself to that which he did not deserve. And now anyone, what Paul says, if we go under the water with Christ, we will come up out of the water with him as well. So uh, we meditate on the promises of God and we make those thoughts obedient. It says he mused on the work of his hands. So we, we remember, we meditate, then we muse. Muse is to consider something carefully and thoughtfully. And the Hebrew word, uh, even has this connotation of talking to yourself about it, as in Psalm 42, where the psalmist has to say to himself, why are you in despair, O my soul? Trust in God. So I'd say not only do we mold these promises in our mind, but we speak them out loud. And I've heard Sandy give that counsel on the phone. I've heard her share with fellow believers in the office here before no, you need to speak out loud. Pray out loud. Pray those things out loud. Don't just mold them in your mind. But muse is what you're really saying. Is you're, Declare the works of God. Declare the promises of God. Declare those things that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus and remind the enemy verbally that just as, he is a, just as real as his attacks are, so also is the reality of Jesus. And so we muse. We muse. And then uh, when, when we do this, then maybe we can do number four, which is to stretch out our hands to God in prayer and worship. Where before we were bowed low, we were distraught and depressed and frustrated. But then when we remember, and when we meditate and when we muse, we rise and our shoulders get back and we start to feel the courage of Joshua that I will be with you wherever you go. And we remember that Jesus repeated the same thing that surely I will be with you always to the end of the age and we can lift our arms to heaven and we can stand tall and we can declare that anxiety and fear has no place because perfect love has cast it out. Perfect love has come and everything that is Jesus's is mine too. Amen? So in Psalm 40... David records that he did that in, in that little phrase. He says, he says that God heard his, turned to him and heard his cry. So he's been crying out to the Lord. He's been remembering, meditating, musing, and stretching out his hands. And then, so there was in one sense an immediate victory that he was able to turn his arms to heaven and cry out in worship. But in another sense, he was still stuck. Because it says, 
he waited patiently for the Lord. Those two words, waiting and patience, they're hard enough on their own, right? When you have to wait, that's hard. When you have to be patient, that's hard. But what about when you have to do them both? When you have to wait and be patient. Anybody ever had to wait for wait in the waiting room of the hospital for news? That's hard. It's really hard. Not only are you waiting, but you're trying to maintain your composure and not take your fear and your pain and your frustration out on the doctors and nurses. You know that they didn't create this situation. They, you know that they, they're working for your good. Waiting patiently is about as hard as it gets. They're very difficult. And it's especially so when you feel trapped in the miry clay of the brokenness of life. Mm. Wow. Praise the Lord. Amen. Yeah. 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 
It is. Yeah. I've sat in those waiting rooms with people, and it, does, it just feels like a wall. And in, until you know, you cry out to God, and you believe He's there, and you believe that He hears you, but you don't know when the answer's coming. And sometimes it's, it's hours or days or weeks. Other times it's decades. Uh, when I went to Topeka, I had a student, her name was Mackenzie, and uh, when I got there, she was 14 years old. She had a dysfunctional father, which meant she had a dysfunctional family. She was especially notable because she at least stood out to me. I've met dozens and dozens of kids with broken families. She stood out to me because when she talked to me about her struggle, she wasn't seeking some kind of retribution from God or some kind of like explanation for why things were the way she, they were. She said, she, she told me, I, I want to give my dad the benefit of the doubt and I want to honor him as God commanded because his word says that that's how I'll be blessed. Which was incredible for a 14-year-old girl to say that to me. And She explained there's lots of reasons that dad is the way he is. When, when she was four, he tried to get a fire going better. Like it, it was dying out and they were with friends. He had a few drinks and so he just took a, a can of gasoline and went to throw it, pour it on the fire, and the fire just, as you can imagine, like caught the gasoline and just rode up the can and burst in his hand and all caught his whole body on fire. And um, he, spent, he spent days in, in the hospital. Uh, actually, he was so petrified and in shock that he took off down the road and it was a drunken man who wrapped him in a trench coat and put the fire out. He ran, ran away, just if you can imagine, for that family. He was in, ended up being in the hospital uh, more or less for four months. They didn't know if he'd live, and from that day forward, he had epilepsy in addition to the nasty burn marks all over his body. And He had to take this whole cocktail of drugs to try and control his pain and try and control the epilepsy. And uh, They found out way later, like uh, just, I just talked to him last year, that those drugs had psychotic side effects, which you know, they said explained a lot. There was a lot that I didn't know about what went on in their household, but because of the side effects, mom had to remove the kids, and there were a lot of them. Like Mackenzie was in the middle of seven kids, okay? So mom took the kids away from dad to keep them safe, and you can imagine the pressures that that brings. So she started down a path of destructive, pattern, destructive patterns. And ultimately, Mackenzie too. She maintained her faith in God, but also was seeking the companionship that she was receiving neither from her mother nor from her father, the, the love, the attention, the affection, the care. Um, and so she would dabble in and out with boys and parties and a whole mess. 20 plus years of destruction, slimy, slimy pits and miry clay. Sometimes waiting patiently for the Lord takes a long, long time. The one constant in the middle of all of this was Earl and Sadie, Mackenzie's grandparents. And so um, I was talking to Mackenzie and her grandparents on a Zoom call last year because dad died last year. Her dad passed after years and years of this struggle. And so I was talking with them, and the grandparents were talking about a time, they, they shared about a time when Jennifer, Mackenzie's mom, had really made a mess of things. Just really made a mess of the family and it was in the courts as to whether or not they were going to keep the kids. And uh, One of the kids had been involved in um, some pretty sad stuff. And they said it was, we were in the middle of our kitchen, we were cleaning up after dinner 
And Sadie said, I just got overwhelmed right there in the kitchen and fell to my knees. And she said, Earl put his hand on me and couldn't, even, and, and couldn't stand much longer than I could because we were just so overwhelmed with what had happened to our family and uh, where was God and when would He hear our cry for help. And they're looking at this situation and they're looking at the three older ones who are in all kinds of trouble and then Mackenzie and the three younger ones that are kind of, how on earth are they going to cope with all of their, they're experiencing even more trauma. And uh, Sadie said, but the Lord gave uh, a command and a promise to Earl and I there in our kitchen. She said we were, uh, we were praying and he directed me back to the chapter that I'd read in my Bible that, smor- that morning. Jeremiah 31, verses 16 and 17. It says, thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. And they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. And Earl said, he said, I wrote just in a little pocketbook I carried around, don't cry, your work will be rewarded. There is hope for your future and your children. And he said, every day, for a lot of years, I looked at that, And Mackenzie, she didn't know that story. She started to cry. And uh, I just asked her what she was feeling and thinking. And she said, I'm one of those children that the Lord promised was going to return home and be okay. And she started to talk about how a couple years ago, uh, her mom had started to turn a corner that she had had an encounter with God um, at at church and that she had really started to find joy and peace again and had started to root herself again in more stable living. And, um, and that, when the, that it had restored Mackenzie's relationship to her mom as well. And that she was here and, and she said a lot of these, so she had already shared about kind of her journey. She said a lot of these things that I was experiencing, I see in that promise, Grandpa and Grandma, and I didn't know that. And um, I was just thinking about that. 20 plus years before they got to see any fulfillment. But it did come to pass. And sometimes in life and in the paths of God, there are times of miry clay and pits that require patient waiting for much longer than seems fair sometimes. But His promise is true. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. For a long time, it, that's all it was for Earl and Sadie. It was just a promise. The rock was just something that they were clinging to, but they were remembering God's faithfulness and meditating and musing and stretching out their hands to God and waiting for Him, patiently waiting for Him to hear their cry. And I, that's been set in motion now. And um, we're still praying for some of the kids, but that's uh, been set in motion. And that whole family now, that's the story that they're standing on. And so that's where David's at. And listen to the result when we stretch our hands out to God and when we stand on those promises. It says in verse 3, He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. 
Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders You have done, the things You planned for us. No one can recount to You. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. So we see here the result of remembering, of meditating, of musing, of stretching out in impossible circumstances is that a new song is put in our mouth. A song of praise. And I say this to you as folks who are on resurrection ground. That's what I like to call, call the present. We're on resurrection ground. David in the past was looking forward to a time where there would be a rock that we could always stand on. Well, that rock has come. The cornerstone that the builders rejected, but that is the foundation of all things. We are on resurrection ground. There's a new song that all of the redeemed of the Lord can sing. You think about the life of Jesus. and He was fully aware when He came the pit of destruction that awaited Him. He knew all about having to wait until the perfect time to be raised up too in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Lord, take this cup from me. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to go through the clay and the pit like that. I don't want to go all down into the grave. Take this cup from me. But He knew that in God's timing, He would be put on a rock and He would become the rock. He knew all about the resurrection and the results when we live that way, when we live like we are standing on resurrection ground, even when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, is there at the, in the second half of verse 3. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. When we live like Jesus died and rose from the dead, we then can fulfill the promise and the, the admonishment of 1 Thessalonians 4.13, do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Do not grieve and sorrow and worry and fear like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So those who have hope, what does it look like in the slimy pits and the miry clay? Well, in these verses that we've read, it's four things. It's praise, that we receive a God-given song when we put our trust in Him. Casey exemplifies this to me. It seems like every season of struggle that we've ever gone through, there is a song or two that kind of sticks out on the Spotify radio that become repeat songs. They're hearted and they have the repeat button pressed and sometimes I come home and that's just what we hear over and over again. We sing these songs and then the kids start to pick them up. And those lyrics just become a testimony and a cry of praise that we believe we're on resurrection ground in spite of what we're going through. I'll never forget quite, there's never been quite uh, the same kind of song as the songs that we sang when we lived right over off of 111 after the tornado. And the way that the songs filled that house was just a whole different time for us. Thanking the Lord that the baby that he had blessed us with was okay and thanking the Lord that we were all together and thanking the Lord for opportunities to minister to our neighbors and um, but also struggling like struggling as a married couple navigating in incredibly difficult circumstances and struggling as parents and all the transition of our world and and yet there was praise there was a song that God put in our mouths and we sang and sang and sang when that happens when praise happens there's commitment the second half of verse 3, it's, there are lives that are committed to God. People see what the Lord has gone through and people see what His people go through and how we are lifted above it. Like, like Isaiah 40 says, that we are lifted like on wings like eagles above the fray. Even when we're weary, there is strength that carries us through. And it inspires faith. This is how people who have hope grieve and sorrow. 
This is how we walk through miry pits and clay. It says that when we praise and when we commit ourselves to God and when others begin to commit themselves to God, there's blessing. There's, there's happiness. There's a greater faith and realization of a living God. And there's true intimacy that comes from right relationships. Satisfaction, fulfillment, and life that comes only from trusting God no matter what the circumstances look like. And that intimacy uh, brings us to an even greater awareness of His care and His thoughts concerning His children. And it sets the stage. It builds the foundation firmer. Uh, I've found that following Jesus is not, does not follow the law of diminishing returns, but rather a law of exponential gains. Amen? I have I've found that following Jesus is not follow the law of diminishing returns, but rather a law of exponential gains. I become more and more aware of His faithfulness, which allows me to meditate more and more uh, strongly and to muse more and more persistently and to praise more and more faithfully. Amen? Verse 6, he continues, he says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now these are the verses that are later quoted by the New Testament as referencing the Messiah. More on that in a minute. David knew that God took no pleasure in sacrifices and offerings. This was not just a New Testament prophecy. David had already, had already known and been aware of this truth. If this, in fact, did happen uh, during the time that Absalom was betraying him, we know from Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, he had already declared, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in birth offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, that you will not despise. David already knows that religion is useless, that those things are just symbols of the heart that is surrendered to God. And he learned that from Samuel, who said to his predecessor, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better to sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So we know religion is, religion is a dead way to live. It's not the resurrected ground. And David, David says that. David expresses that. He recognizes that walking through slimy pits and miry clay we must recognize that we are completely dependent on God to save us. That there is no religious ritual that's going to draw us out. There is no uh, right amount of prayer and fasting. If I just do it just this way, if I get the formula just right, it's just total dependence and, and a complete and full utterance of dependence on the Lord. But then there's this interesting phrase. He says, my ears you have pierced. What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew word is translated as opened. So some translations might say that instead of my ears you have pierced, it might say my ears you have opened. It literally means to dig or to bore like you were digging a pit or a well and bringing refreshment of water springing forth from the ground. It symbolizes the opening of the ear for instruction. Like you dig the hole, the water comes forth, and now your ears are refreshed with instruction to hear the voice of God. And this was actually prophesied in Isaiah about Jesus. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear. Did you know that Jesus was 
a was the first disciple. He was the disciple of Yahweh. And he called 12 disciples to follow him. That's, this is what it was prophesied that Jesus would, would obey his Father. That he would follow the, the Master's leading. And as I was not disobedient, nor did I turn my back, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. You might recognize this from what happened to him at the end of his life. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Jesus again and again said, I will do the will of my Father. I must do the will of my Father. His ears had been awakened to instruction. He had his ears attuned to the will of the Father no matter what. But the NIV says that uh, my ears you have pierced, because there's actually a dual meaning here. So in addition to the literal meaning of the Hebrew, there's this dual meaning that's rooted in the Hebrew law in Deuteronomy chapter 15. You can read verses 11 to 17 if you want the whole context, but basically what it boils down to is um, because of debt or crime or, or a combination of both, there were sometimes Israelites who became slaves of other Israelites. Now, Part of the law was a command that, 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 Isra that Israelites should never again be slaves like they were in Egypt. And so there was instruction given to Israelites who owned other Israelites, so to speak, that they must be released during the seventh year, a Sabbath year. The slave would go free. But then there was this provision in Deuteronomy 15 that said, well, but in the case that a slave has grown to love his master, a master like, say, Boaz, who redeems their debts, who, takes, who, who redeems and saves them from the consequences of their previous decisions. Or, if a slave has other ties to the family, like maybe he has other family members or friends who are slaves as well, and he would just like to continue to be a part of the family and by his own will chooses not to go free though he could have, in such cases he could remain and carry on as the master's permanent ser servant, by symbolically piercing his ear and becoming what's called a bond servant to signify his decision to not go free but to remain as a servant. And so the dual meaning here is not only an opening of the ear for instruction, but also an opening of the ear for service. And I would draw your attention to Philippians chapter 2 because this is exactly the imagery that Paul is drawing on when he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, specifically a bondservant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He came and took upon Himself the place of a servant. He could have gone free at any stage. Okay, that's the temptation of the, de of the devil, the mocks of the crowd down beneath the cross saying, why don't you bring yourself down? Why don't you call down? What, what people don't sometimes realize is he could have done that. He did not have to stay on the cross. He could have done that. He could have chosen it. And it, what it would have been is kind of like the flood. <laughs> it would have been a great reset. Man's hope would, would, have been, uh, would, would have been diminished because their only hope was that God would redeem us. And if Jesus said, you know what, no, I, I'm content with my fellowship with the Father, but He didn't. In His freedom, that's what Philippians 2 says, He chose to remain a servant. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And He did this because of love. 
Just as the slaves and servants of old had the choice to do, Jesus loved the Father. He loved Yahweh. He was open to His instruction and completely obedient to His will. But also, so He, was, he also loved His bride. He loved what was promised to Him. He loved His inheritance. His ear was not only open to instruction, but His body was pierced in selfless service to His bride. The symbolism of the spear in the side goes, ties directly to the Jewish law of, be, of bond servant. He was literally pierced. And that's no creative application. That's not just me imagining this onto the text in a creative way. You could turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And this is the passage that makes this a messianic psalm. Hebrews 10, verse 1 says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped, stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, and here's a quote from Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you, re you prepared for Me. So instead of my ears you have pierced, He says a body you have prepared for Me. He substitutes His body as the object of service and instruction. His physical body. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And so I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. And then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first covenant to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Lord Jesus was the servant who not only offered up his ear to be pierced, but a body was prepared for him which would be pierced and offered up for our sake. So if you are a Christian and you've been born again, then you, you are that slave set free. And this life, so to speak, is the seventh year of Sabbath rest when you get to decide what you're going to do with your freedom. Through that one sacrifice, he has, past tense, made you perfect forever as you are being made holy. So it is a perfection that is settled, and it is a perfection that is growing. It's awesome. It's settled. You're free. Now what are you going to do with the freedom? What are you going to do with the freedom? There's two admonishments. There's one here in Psalm 40. The rest of the passage is David's commitment to what he's going to do with his freedom. He says, I will proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, as you know, O Lord. So the first thing to do with your freedom is don't seal your lips. Confess openly your weakness. Confess openly your need for God. Confess openly His mighty salvation. 
in prophesying about Messiah, David recalls this covenant scroll. Okay, it says he's alluding to Jesus opening a scroll and fulfilling the scroll. But he also carried a covenant scroll around with him, reminding him of his complete reliance on Yahweh. They were required, and he was required in the presence of the Levites when he was coronated as king to write down this law about kingship and its reliance on Yahweh. You can read about that. I think it's uh, Deuteronomy 17. Um, anyway, yeah, it's Deuteronomy 17. He he has to write down this law, and he carries this scroll around him, reminding him of his reliance. And he says, "I will proclaim that in the assembly." I will always declare that God is righteous. Even when my lot is miry clay and slimy pits, I'll declare that God is righteous. I'll declare that He's going to work in this. I'll declare, maybe as He does in verse 12, that my own sin sometimes overtakes me and my heart fails within me. It's not God who's failing. It's me who's failing. It's, it's humanity who's failing. But God's righteousness is always only what I need. That, so that's, that's our admonishment that in our freedom. Just proclaim your complete and utter dependence on God. We're called to do that. We're called to do that in 1 John verses 1, 8, and 9. It says, if you, if you say you don't have sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sin to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5 says that we confess our sins one to another so that we might be healed. So that's, that's, our, that's our admonishment in our freedom. Just don't seal your lips. Talk about your salvation. Remind yourself of your dependence. Confession should not be the exclusive domain of 12-step programs. If you talk to somebody whose life has been changed by the open confession of a 12-step program, you will hear someone who is doggedly insistent that I will never ever stop declaring my own weakness and my need for the sharpening of brothers and sisters. We, just, we have the gospel, the real freedom of our world. In fact, all the 12-step programs are rooted in the gospel. They were, that's where they came from. We should not be relinquishing that only to 12-step programs and for the most broken, for we are a people who say, me too. We are no less broken, right? So we need to confess. Don't seal your lips. Talk about your weakness, but glorify God's righteousness. And as you receive His instruction, confess openly that you can only move forward with His help. And the other admonishment comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, You were called to freedom, freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So if we're gonna if we're gonna walk responsibly in our freedom and accountably in our freedom, serve one another in love. That's it. Offer your body. So don't seal your lips. Receive God's instruction. Declare your need and dependence on Him to fulfill it. And then offer your body, offer your life for others. Because, Paul says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let yourself be pierced as a bondservant to the world. Have the same attitude, Philippians 2, as Christ Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. As the bride of Christ, submit yourself to His mission to seek and save the, life, the lost. Make it your whole life. Pierce yourself, so to speak, and join Him in His mission. Take up His cross and His piercing and His wounds and join Him in His mission. The Lord Jesus came not to do His own will, but His Father's. We're called to do the same. Even if the ways and paths of God that we read about at the start of this passage sometimes require a long period of waiting patiently and obedience while we patiently wait, Clay and pits aside, there is a new song of hope that we can experience once He lifts us up and puts our feet back on the rock. So I just want to admonish you this evening to stand on the rock, 
to declare it, to declare His righteousness in the assembly, and to offer your body for His mission. Heavenly Father, we love You. Your Word is so good. It's so complete um, uh, with instruction and hope. Uh, it, it contains, as, as, uh, as we declare, everything uh, that is necessary for to know the will of God and all things concerning salvation. There's nothing lacking in Your Word. There's nothing lacking in Your character. There's nothing lacking in Your plan. And we, uh, even in the valleys, Lord, with Your help, we just declare that we're utterly dependent on You and that we will patiently wait for You to hear our cries. And we will sing a new song in the meantime. Thank You, Lord, for this Word. Thank You for the way that You're speaking uh, to me through these psalms. I pray, Lord, that Your Spirit would be speaking also to everyone else who is, is here learning and studying. Lord, that You would grow us and that we would grow in stature and wisdom before You and before men for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.